listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. We'd like to take this time to welcome back ACB President Dan Spoon to kick off our next conversation. Thank you, Clark. Thank you, Swatha. It's uh, really a, a wonderful opportunity to be here today and have a chance to talk with a true partner uh, within our accessibility and advocacy efforts. Well, I am very honored uh, to welcome today to our discussion uh, Dr. Jill. Heemskirt. She is the Deputy Director of the National Institutes of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, affectionately known as NIBIB. I did not realize until we started getting involved with the National Institutes of Health that they actually have 27 different institutes inside of their organization. It's a very extensive agency. And uh, Dr. Heemsker has really been a very strong ally of the American Council of Blind. She spoke at our convention in Omaha uh, this last summer, uh, gave us an update there, but more and more just keeps happening and developing when it comes to accessible uh, home testing kits for COVID, as well as the idea of expanding uh, home testing kits and their accessibility in all kinds of different forms and avenues. So welcome, Dr. Heemsker. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. So we have, we've, I was thinking back, this partnership has now been going on for well over a year. That's just, it seems hard to believe (laughs) that we're coming up in a year since we got together for that first conversation where you all pulled in representatives from across the disabled community and really focused in what three key areas with our senior and aging population, those with fine motor skill uh, disabilities, and also those of us in the blind and low vision community. That's right. That was the end of March last year. So we're coming up on our uh, one year anniversary. Yes, it's, it's just, it's pretty amazing. And right from our first, uh, first meeting, I just really got a sense um, of how much NIBIB was really interested in understanding the accessibility challenges for their uh, COVID-19 uh, testing products. So um, could you go through a little bit maybe to explain to our larger audience today Um, kind of the steps you all have gone through over the last year to bring accessible COVID testing kits to our population? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, So um, I want to start by talking about our um, NIBIB-run program called RADx, Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, which was set up to um, develop COVID tests during the pandemic. And um, once I give you a sense of how RADx itself works, I'll tell you what we've been doing for um, accessible tests and um, the progress that we've made since we last met. So um, 
NIBIB is one of 27 institutes. As Dan pointed out, we are a small one, but we're entirely focused on engineering. And so when Congress was looking for an NIH institute to take charge of developing COVID tests at the very start of the pandemic in 2020, they looked to NIBIB because we had a longstanding program called the Point of Care Technology Research Network, or POCTERN, which had been in place since 2007. And the goal was to develop point of care and home tests for um, lots of different diseases. And Congress, you know, when we were, if you think back in the day of waiting in car lines for hours and then waiting one or two weeks for your test result to come back, Congress was really... um, excited about the notion of first expanding um, laboratory testing so that it was itself more accessible, but also developing home tests and tests that can be used at the point of care in doctor's offices or clinics or um, pharmacies so that everybody can get rapid results um, and rapid diagnosis. And so They gave us um, $500 million at the start of the pandemic, um, which was a huge expansion of our funding for um, point-of-care technology development. And over time, over the last three years of the pandemic, we've attracted a total of $1.7 billion. So we're we're quite an engine now, um, as, as I will describe to you. And... The reason that we are rapid accelerators of diagnostics is that we are we don't just give money to companies to develop a new test. We have a, a system in place where we have hundreds of experts in, in all the domains required for bringing a new test to market. So technology, business development, regulatory development, commercialization, and manufacturing and we, for each company that we support, we do give them funding, but we also give them this wraparound team that works with them to solve any problem that may arise, including supply chain issues or hiccups with the FDA. And it's this very hands-on um, process that allows companies to quickly overcome um problems that that may arise, either technology, where we um, do a lot of work to understand the root cause of why a test might suddenly not be working as it was intended, or um, problems with um, getting equipment to build a new manufacturing line. And so this kind of partnership structure has been um, extremely helpful to the companies developing COVID tests. And we've managed to shrink the development timeline from what is typically a six-year process to get a new medical device on the market from idea to to marketplace. We've shrunk that six years down to as little as six months now. Um, And so what the way we do that is, um, as I said, we work with the companies closely, but we've, we also set up large cores that can conduct independent testing. So we have a validation core at Emory where they um, 
they test the tests. They have a huge bank of, of samples and they put the tests through their paces and get data that is good enough for the FDA to, to um, have some confidence in what the results are. We also have a clinical studies core that runs clinical trials of the tests um, as, as are required for getting emergency use authorization from the FDA. And we have a deployment core, which is really a unique structure that we set up with the COVID funding that is responsible for um, getting a product that um, that has been developed, getting it all the way to the market. So helping with manufacturing issues, helping with um, um, business issues, helping with um, getting through the regulatory process. We have, um, we got a huge number of applications, 824 different organizations approached us um, to develop a, a new COVID test. And um, we put all of these um, project proposals through a series of reviews. First, the, the more standard paper review that NIH does, but then we had a hands-on phase called the Shark Tank, where for two weeks, the expert team works with the applicant to really understand their technology, what data they have, what does the company look like, what are the chances of success. And for tests that seemed like they could go the distance, they would go into a de-risking phase where all of the risks to development that were identified in the Shark Tank were hammered out. And for tests where the the de-risking phase, which would would take anywhere from uh, six weeks to a few months, um, tests that emerged from this de-risking went into full um, funding for manufacturing and deployment. And over time, we've worked with um, about a hundred companies to develop tests. We have um, these companies have achieved fifty-two different FDA emergency use authorizations. And 14 of those EUAs are for over-the-counter home tests. And in fact, this program um, uh, uh, got the first ever over-the-counter EUA from the FDA. So we're very proud of that. What, what has happened, of course, over the, the through the course of the pandemic is that um, whereas testing at the start was primarily in the lab, most of the testing now is done at home. Most of the testing is done by individuals at home. And about half of the home tests in the country that are available now emerged from companies that were, that participated in the RADx program. So just, just as an example of the power of this program, and as I said, it's funding, it's in-kind expertise and support, but it's also government partnerships. And one of the biggest accelerants of our program is our close collaboration with the FDA. When the government decided to make tests freely available to, um, to um, households in the U.S., they realized that there just weren't enough tests in the U.S. market that had FDA authorization to even launch the program. And so we put our heads together with the FDA to think, how can we get 
um, tests that are on the market elsewhere, ready to go, seem to be working well. How can we get them through the FDA process and allow them to be sold in the U.S.? We set up a program called ITAP, which is the Independent Test Assessment Program. And the FDA told us, here's the data that we want to see for the laboratory, for the clinic, what we want to know about the manufacturing process and about the company. And if Radix independently gathers this data and submits it to us, we will have great confidence that 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 data is correct and believable and we'll be able, and it will come at the exact data that we need. So we'll be able to quickly turn around an emergency use authorization. Typically the the time it it can be months to years of it that it takes to get an EUA. And a lot of that time is spent going back and forth with the FDA to, so that the FDA understands the data, (coughs) excuse me, may ask for additional testing, et cetera. So I'm so sorry. Hang on one second. Take a moment there and pause, Doc. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's see if I can go on. Okay. All right. So sorry about that. I'm talking too much. (laughs) 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 So, Through these kinds of government partnerships and company partnerships, we've had a tremendous impact on the testing landscape in the country. But soon after the government announced the free test distribution program, the government received some very targeted and effective outreach from ACB and other advocacy groups pointing out that there are not accessible tests that can be used independently by everyone. And this was such an aha moment for us when we realized the truth of that. And we immediately took that on as our highest priority to um, make tests available that could be used by more people. If I can just recall when we had our first opportunity, when we were all together, Dr. Heemskirt, you you walked us through two or three of the tests and how they worked. And I remember just asking a very <laughs> stupid, simple question, which was, were you able to do these with your eyes closed? And you said, no way. It was <laughs> so obvious to me we had a problem. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, that listening session was such a a wonderful experience. We had um, nine different advocacy groups, seven different federal agencies that have accessibility as part of their mission. And we um, just, and we had our engineering team and said, tell us what, what do you find challenging? Because um, much of it is obvious and, and things that everybody finds challenging, all the little bits of plastic that are hard to identify in the box, all of the 
um, complex, tiny print instructions, the, <clears throat> the uh, multi-steps that you have to do, counting drops of liquid into tiny little holes, um, and then no clear result readout. So you, at the end of all this process, which can be, um, it's on average, the number of steps that you have to do from opening the box to throwing the, the used test away, the average number of tests of steps is something like 65. It's, it's a, mm. an enormous, uh, complicated process. Um, at the end, you get a little strip, you get a little line on a strip, and it's very difficult to read if you have any um, impairment to, to vision at all. And so um, the test is, you know, just simply not useful independently. So we, we, we came to understand the problem better, and then engineers being who they are, they love a problem and they start trying to solve it. That's, that's their, that's their life's blood. And we set up a program where um, <clears throat> we worked and we didn't want to just have that one listening session either. And, and um, ACB, thank you. You've been so generous with your time over the past year, working with us regularly, regularly and repeatedly to come together and, check on how we're doing and seeing the directions that we're going in and making suggestions. Um, we have a process where we have um, identified engineers and designers who themselves are blind or low vision. And we have reviewers on our panel looking at our proposals and prototype ideas from the blind, the aging and the motor impairment populations. So we, have had close engagement with the advocacy communities throughout the last year, and it's been tremendously helpful. Um, we have a, a multi-step process of working with the companies. We started with 25 different companies um, who have over-the-counter tests already on the market, and we're partners in Radex. And um, over time, we've narrowed it down to 12 that we're working closely with to make modifications. Many of the modifications are, are to the instructions. The instructions are not easily readable by the typical electronic means that people have. Um, other, other modifications are to the design itself of the, of the test. And we have just submitted an EUA application for a very simple test design. I was hoping we would get it in time for this meeting, but be looking out for that. Um, simple two-part test, do the swab, click the swab into the, the test and, and just wait for 15 minutes and you get a result. Now it's not, a, it's not an independently readable result. It still has to be visually read. Um, but Far, I, I think far better what we're hearing, far better to be able to at least conduct the test independently, even if you have to get assistance reading it. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're uh, continuing to go through this process now. Some of the modifications to the boxes and the instructions have already been rolled out by the companies. They're going to be appearing over the next year. 
Um, and there is this one uh, new test that emerged from the program that one of our companies redesigned their test completely um, that that will also be coming out soon. We're, we're looking at the um, process all the way from when you buy it in the store all the way to when you throw it away at the end to look, think about accessibility from many, many different um, angles. And we've learned a tremendous amount in doing this. We've learned a lot from the advocacy groups, from our um, the, the designers and reviewers who are blind and low vision, and from the companies and the FDA, we've, we've just learned a tremendous amount. And we started to become concerned that all this learning might be lost if we didn't preserve it somewhere. And so we have now produced a um, best practices document that we partnered with the U.S. Access Board to post on the web. And it's a 92-page document that talks about how to make home tests more accessible. And it lists um, many, many different challenges and their proposed solutions. Um, this is an interim document, and we are going to be updating it in early summer. But really, it's it's focused on COVID, but it, it is now sort of a generalizable roadmap for industry to build more accessible home devices more broadly. About 80% of the content involves things like instructions and packaging and um, and and how to manipulate things that are not specific to COVID tests at all. So I think this stands potentially to have um, a broad impact on the on the market. Um, Gabrielle, did you have a question? Sorry to see in your hand. Oh, we'll we'll take hands in 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 a little bit uh, in a few minutes, uh, Doctor Heemsker. Okay, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll wrap up with a few more comments then. Um, so, um, if you want to see the best practices document um, on the U.S. Access Board website, the uh, easiest way I've found to find it is by putting uh, into Google the search terms radx best practices and it comes up as the first hit the uh the link is a little bit convoluted i i feel <laughs> um the other thing i want to tell you about and i i this will not be a terribly satisfying update because we don't have the results yet but but i wanted to tell you about the user survey that we conducted um, under the urging of the ACB and others um, to, to get uh, real-world feedback from people using available tests. So we put out a survey. This came out of the home labs at Emory, put out a survey saying, uh, you know, how easy was it for you to use test X? And um, gathering information about people's real-life experience um, we got 550 responses to that survey, which was great. And um, interestingly, about 75% of those respondents are either blind or low vision. And so we think that we're, there's just going to be a wealth of information there that will help us um, think about our test redesign and our test design from the ground up. 
um, and also will help inform the best practices document when we put out the next iteration this summer. Well, um, Dr. Heemskirt, the the really exciting news that Brian and Kim and others shared with us here a couple of months ago, if you could spend just a little bit of time and talk about the RADx 3 program, and I believe there's two different um, phases or components to that. But to me, this is really kind of leveraging what we learned through the COVID testing and now applying it to home tests in general. And it just seems like it's an amazing opportunity for accessibility across all types of home tests. Yes, um, I'm, I'm excited for the very same reason. So <laughs> it's our third uh, solicitation for tests. Um, there, are t- there were two solicitations in one. One was for um, accessible tests. So same, you know, current best-in-class technology, like a rapid antigen test, for example, but design it with home use in mind. Um, You know, a lot of these uh, tests that are on the market started out as point-of-care tests that um, a lab technician was meant to conduct. Counting little drops into a little hole is not, you know, for the faint of heart. So uh, what happened was, we had all these point of care tests and the fastest way to get home tests on the market was to kind of rejigger them a little bit, put them in a box and sell them on the shelves, but they're obviously quite clunky. So um, starting with universal accessible design from the beginning is, is really what's going to give us the best tests for the best, most accessible tests. And we are, we got 51 different applications. We're going through a rolling review process now. Um, and we're, um, we're selecting tests for funding and this wraparound in-kind uh, development acceleration. Um, we're selecting tests that can get to the EUA stage in a 12 to 18 month window. And then the second part of this RADx Tech 3 solicitation focuses on high performance tests. Now this addresses another element of frustration with the current home test, which is if you get a positive, you're confident that you have COVID. If you get a negative, it's a little more um, questionable. And the, the recommendation is wait 48 hours and take a second test mm-hmm. to be sure. Um, that's, you know, that's very frustrating if you're, if you, especially if you have symptoms and you're negative. Um, and so what we would like is to have tests in the home that are rapid, but are just as reliable at giving you a, a positive or negative answer as the PCR test in the lab. And the exciting other exciting part about this initiative is that accessibility is included as one of the requirements for any test that gets developed here. So these will be high performance accessible tests um, because th- these are based on new technology that has to be developed from an earlier stage for allowing a three year um, timeline for development. We received 167 applications. Most of them focused on 
not just COVID, but COVID and flu or COVID flu and RSV. So multiplex test, which is another thing that will be great to have if you have symptoms and you get a negative COVID test, well, you still don't know what you have. So <laughs> this, this is hoped to really um, kick things up a notch. Um, so we are, you know, continuing to build new um, accessible tests over the next few years. And um, we're also through partnership with other institutes at NIH that work on specific disease areas, we're um, ha- doing partnership RADx solicitations. For example, there's one on maternal health. There's one on um, HIV. There, there was one for MPOX. So we're trying to develop tests for lots of different diseases in partnership with the institutes that work on those diseases. And all of those will also have accessibility as a focal point. So I think it, we, you know, you can't help but imagine that um, there will be a natural evolution because the increased accessibility benefits everybody. Everybody's yep. frustrated yep. with these terrible tests. I mean, I sh- it's better <laughs> than sitting in a car line, but you know they can be better, and everyone wants them to be better. And when the better ones start coming out, I think that's going to spread um, across the market to home medical devices. Once the principles are understood, as, as they will be when, for example, the practice guidelines are adopted, um, companies are very eager to work with us, very excited to get our suggestions, but they don't know what to do until we tell them. So it's not, it's just not obvious. It's, it's, it's been a year of deep study, deep learning from the communities. And um, I think it's really important that we make sure that this, this knowledge is preserved and built upon and applied in lots of different areas. And so I guess I'll stop there. And Dr. Heemskirt, you, you said the magic words there about five minutes, minutes ago, universal design built in, in the beginning with the design, mm-hmm. not added on after the fact. Yes. It just truly makes all the difference. And how much is the funding for the RADx3 project? Um, the RADx3 project has about um, $200 million behind it. Mm-hmm. Pretty significant amount of money. It, it is. And um, I think it's it's amply funded that we will be seeing, a, a, you know, a good handful or two handfuls of new products on the street coming out of the initiative. We've got some really exciting applications. Ah, that's fantastic. And, and what a great partnership. We really appreciate it. Clark, Swatha, any questions from you before we open it up for questions from our, uh, from our members? I have one. Sure. Um, go ahead, Swatha. So Dr. Hingenskirk, um, in addition, um, so many of our members have, um, in, in addition to blindness, um, they have other disabilities like a Dexterity game parents like I do, or um, they're older, or they have cognitive disabilities. So, um, what can you can you kind of speak to the progress being made on um, people with the 
accessibility for multiple multiple disabled people. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. We did in our listening session initially have um, people representing the elderly population, people with um, motor disabilities and people with blindness and people with low vision. So we had some um, diversity in there. We found that many of the challenges were common across those groups, but at the same time, there were challenges that were specific. So for example, different preferences about whether you want um, instructions in the box are instructions that are read digitally, you know, depending on how you live your life. One thing, um, the, the older population is not so interested in electronic instructions as the younger generation, for example. Um, so, and, and not everyone has a cell phone. So, um, it, there's not quite a one size fits all, but we found that for some of the simpler design concepts, um, they really will be very broadly accessible as long as the instructions are available in multiple forms. And Dr. Go ahead, Clark. Sure. And and Dr. Heemskirt, this is Clark Rockfall. Thank you for your time here today. Um, You know, we, we are still seeing announcements of the, you know, the food and drug administration, for example, just recently, approved a new at-home test um, that can test for both COVID variants as well as the flu. Um, So I I don't imagine these tests are going to go away, right? Just like we see the growth in telemedicine and uh, at-home medical equipment. What, What is your sense on where at-home medicine and at-home testing will go in the future. Um, I I completely agree with you, Clark, that this is not going to go away. I I know that a lot of the companies who started out focused on COVID home tests have diversified their product lines and development. Um, And we've all been trained now with the convenience that we can get a home test and use it and find our, our, our answer quickly. Um, it, I, I don't, I don't think the country wants to go backward. And I think the, we've been, we've been given that convenience and want to have it more broadly in lots of different areas. So um, I, I think one of the upsides of COVID, if there is to be one, is that it has sort of propelled us forward in the evolution toward telemedicine. True, and it's brought a lot of advantages, and it's also brought a lot of challenges to our community, as you can imagine, with accessible uh, medical portals uh, and accessible, really durable medical equipment. So it's kind of, as as we move and we just read the book, Who Moved Our Cheese, Dr. Heemskirt, and and it's been interesting to deal, that change is inevitable and how we deal with it is so important. And it's just, what's so obvious is that the change just keeps coming. And Mm -hmm. so how do we adjust? Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we open it up for some questions from our members? 
I've got one question in the Q&A, if I could, please. Sure, Rick, go ahead. Uh, Viola would like to know if any specific work has been done in the area of colon home testing. There, there it, I, so not my area of expertise. Um, I believe there is a test on the market. I don't know if it's a home collection device that, that then gets sent to a lab or if it's a complete home test, but I know people are working in this area. This isn't one of the areas that we've yet um, taken on ourselves, but I think it's a very important area. Thank you. And, and Dr. Heemskerd, certainly many of the lessons learned from, from you and your team and the, the guidance that Radex shared with the access board would, would be analogous for uh, either colon home tests, uh, pregnancy tests, and many other types of at-home testing with the design of the tests and the, the way to make packaging and instructional materials accessible, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it's um, a, a very rough estimate is about 80% of what's in the best practice guidelines is applicable broadly across the board to home medical devices. Thank you. Very good. Who's our next hand? Our next hand is Patty. Hello, Patty. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for this presentation. Uh, as you've been speaking, I've had a lot of different questions be thought of and uh, answered, and thank you for that. But as you've been speaking, I want to tell you the so-called um, barely, possibly shadowed accessible uh, collection test for the colon pulligard is not. In fact, I almost had what could have been a life-threatening disaster. I was texting with a friend of mine when the test came, and I was able to use the Seeing AI app to identify that that was what was in the box. So I got it out and began looking at it, and I mistook a bottle of liquid for something that I thought was to be ingested like you do when you're prepping for a colonoscopy. So I set it aside and all this is going on. I'm texting with this friend and I just happened to mention to her that it seemed like an awfully big bottle for a home test. And she takes it back. Do not drink that until I come by. So I didn't. Had I not had someone to check that because the bottle was not clearly marked for my app to read. Had I not had someone to check that, I would have drank solution that belonged in the test. Wow. That's, so we that's really an amazing must, story. We must. I threw it in the trash and I had a dispute with my insurance company and I said, we will not be doing that. Thank you. Anyway, that was my story and I thank you for having this presentation. It is something that I'm very passionate about as I'm dealing with several illnesses that really require me to have at-home care, which is not available, and the equipment I need is not available. So thank you very much. I'm sorry I'm emotional, 
Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much for sharing, Patty. Yes. And uh, Dr. Heemskirt, I'd like to get your reaction to the story that Patty shared. Uh, that that is um, uh, that is an extremely um, disturbing story, and I'm going to take that back to my friends at the FDA and alert them um, because I think you've identified a problem that. Um, it's probably not yours alone. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. No. Yeah. No, Thank you for not, sharing not, that. No. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Okay, Thank next, you, Patty. Next hand. Yeah. Next hand is Diane. Yes. Um, can you hear me? Yes, Diane. Okay, great. Um, back when the um, accessible home COVID tests became available and we could order them. Um, I think we could order like a dozen and, or they'd send us a dozen and I got them. So I, I went, you know, I installed the app and look at the instructions and everything. Diane, was, was that the Illum test? Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, I looked at the instructions and, and installed the app and I, ultimately decided it would be easier to have my sighted brother-in-law that works in a nursing home test me. Um, it sounded complicated. So uh, my question now though is, is, are those, how long are those tests good for? Like, can, should I keep them? Have, would they have expired by now? It's probably been a year since I got them. Um, so the, the tests, tests keep um, the FDA continually reevaluates the expiration date of tests? This is a really good question. So the expiration date on your box might not be the real expiration date. It might be as much as a year after that. Um, if you go back to that website um, where you ordered the test, there's a button mm -hmm. on there or a link on there that says, check the expiration date of your test and it will tell you for the lot number of the test you received or the type of test you received when the current um, expiration date is. So even though it's a year old, it, that expiration date may have been extended. Okay. And, uh, oh, I can't even remember what the website is anymore. Um, it's it's covidtests.gov. Okay. And so then I, I would have to get um, get get the information off of the box then for for a lot number. I think I, I think what they want is lot or... number, or maybe for the alum they know what the lot number is, so maybe they just say I, I'm I haven't gone to look at it. That information is also available on the FDA website. They post changes in um, expiration date, but it might be simpler to get it from the covidtest.gov because it's going to be a smaller number of tests that they're, you know, that they bought okay. and that they need to report on. Okay. Well, I will, I will hold on to them until I find out that I shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, um, Dr. Hanskirk. You're welcome. Okay. Our next hand is Christine. Um, I was just curious um, when we get to more accessible tests that somebody has to pay for. I mean, I realize insurance companies are sort of paying for them now, but 
Um, will there be a time when my accessible test will be more expensive than the one that isn't accessible so my insurance company will fight with me over it? That is another excellent question. Um, so what we what one of the criteria in the in the redesign solicitations is for both accessible tests and higher performance tests, one of the criteria is that the test be low cost. And it's that's very aspirational. Um, there, there may need to be trade-offs depending on the type of technology, but um, CMS, um, who helps decide what is reimbursable, is part of the government team that is working on um, new test development. And so they're, they're very tapped in and aware of the issue. I, 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 you know, can't say because we don't have the tests in hand yet, but we're certainly trying to make tests that are not only better, but lower cost. Well, I know that that, that new um, test that was going to do the two flus and the COVID was showing is $99 and then the company went bankrupt. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 a lot for our home test. Thank you, Chris. I will say we have more COVID flu A and B tests in development, um, and uh, there again, I can't predict the price point necessarily, but they they certainly will range just in the same way that the COVID test price ranged. All right. I think we have time for at least one more question, if we have one. Okay, we do. Judy. Yes. Hi. Um, thank you for all your work. And my question is more of a concern. In the next iteration of these tests, I am concerned, especially when we start talking about accessible home pregnancy and whether the results will be private to the person. Because my experience with the Illum test was that you, if you use the app to do the reading of the, of the test result, was that you had to enter in a lot of personal information. But then how is that information being used? And with the current state of everything right now, I would hate to see somebody take a home pregnancy test and then have that be used against them. Yeah, I, I understand the concern. Um, I, I believe um, that Illum is actually modifying its app now to remove some of that information um, to, to make it uh, so that you don't have to enter uh, personally identifiable information to, to take the uh, test and use the app. And um, although we ourselves are not developing pregnancy tests, um, I would hope that that would be a consideration um, on the part of whatever company is is developing a more accessible test. Well, that's why I brought it up. I'd like to be able to have maybe, as you mentioned, some of your friends, the FDA, just be notified that this is a huge, huge concern. And uh, as a nurse, uh, I can see that this could be a huge thing for people who potentially are pregnant and don't want to take the test to have that exposure happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. That's a really important point. 
Thank you, Judy. And, and thank you, uh, Dr. Heemskirt. We can't really tell you how much we really have enjoyed this partnership. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to work with Brian and Kim. And uh, we know we've got some uh, communication work to do with you all as we kind of roll out this next round of information. And we really uh, look forward to our continued partnership. And thank you, thank you, thank you for, for all that you've done for our community. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. And I really appreciate the opportunity to have learned so much over the past year. And again, so grateful for the generosity of you and the entire community for helping us understand and get to this point. Universal design. We're all for Universal it. Universal design. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. We appreciate you taking time on a Monday for us. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Jill Heemskirt of the National Institutes on Health and the National Institute on uh, Biomedical Im Imaging and Bioengineering. Uh, did I get it, Dan? You nailed it, Clark. You nailed <laughs> it. And thank you for helping us with this conversation, Dan. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.